This is an Equity Mates Media podcast. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous to your contracts, they said, "What the f- are you talking about? You insane Hollywood ass." So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to Get Started Investing, a production of Equity Mates Media. This series is everything you need to get started on your investing journey. You don't need a lot of brains in this business. Investing in yourself is the best thing you can do. Anything that improves your own Now you can get rich very young just by having an idea. I mean, I can buy anything I want, basically, but I can't buy time. Welcome to Get Started Investing. In this podcast, we cover all the basics that you need to start your investing journey. Are you joining us for the very first time, or is this the very start of your investing journey? Well, before you dive into this episode with us, our feed is designed to go from the very beginning. So we strongly recommend that you scroll up and start at episode one. However, if you're feeling brave and just want to dive in, then of course, don't let us stop you. Here at JSR, we unpack all of the jargon and the confusing bits. We hear your investing stories with the goal of making investing less intimidating. And of course, we love to have a good time along the way. My name is Bryce. And as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Ren. How are you going? I'm very good, Bryce. I'm very excited for this episode. We love the fact that more and more people are getting into investing and and you know trying to figure out this uh, this big bad world uh, for themselves. And we're joined today by someone who has started their investing journey earlier this year and wrote about it in the paper and so much you know ca- caused such a buzz that both of my parents separately sent the article to me uh so it's very exciting uh that we have her on the show today. absolutely it is our pleasure to welcome senior economics writer for the sydney morning herald jessica irvine jessica welcome thank you it's good to be here so today jess we're going to unpack everything that you've been experiencing and thinking about over the last year as you've started your investing journey i'm sure Many of the things that you've gone through and thought about and questioned are the same as uh, what a lot of people in the Get Started Investing community are also going through at the moment. So uh, before we get into the nuts and bolts, though, we've got to start with our true and false game, Ren. So let's do it. That's it. We we do like to throw out a few statements and get your thoughts on whether they're true or false. Um, I guess these are some of the common thoughts that people at the very start of their investing journey have. So... Uh, if we get stuck in, first one, true or false, uh, your very first investment has been your most successful. That is true, with the caveat that my very first investment is also my only investment that I made. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> I can't, what's the no benchmark. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, we'll have to ask that question in perhaps a year's time and see where we're at. <laughs> True or false, you had a strategy in place before you got started. I would say true uh, to the extent that strategies always evolve and change as you go along. So did I nail it 100%? Maybe not. But I did have a pretty good think about it and how I was going to approach it. So true. Nice. Uh, True or false, 
investing is as hard as you thought it would be. I would also say true. Um, I guess you're spo- I'm supposed to say it's easier than you think. Everybody jump in. <laughs> no, no, that's not the game. <laughs> I'm like, uh, give it a thought. You will be confronted by myriad uh, possibilities and choices that will do your head in um, on an ongoing basis. You will make your tax infinitely more complicated. You, <laughs> you will lay awake at night wondering whether you should be paying $7.50 for brokerage or $9. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, so I think it, it is, it's hard work, but it is rewarding. <laughs> well, I guess the good part to answering true to that is that whilst a lot of people probably think about all those things that you did, it hasn't stopped you from starting at least, which yeah. is you know, you're figuring out all those questions along the way because a lot of people will not even start because they're figuring out, should I be paying seven fifty or $9 in brokerage? So, yeah. Uh, and to close it out, true or false, investing is like gambling. False, although I guess it depends how you do it. It's very possible to approach it in a gambling-type manner and go to the moon on the latest cryptocurrencies or whatever, <laughs> <laughs> but it doesn't have to be. Nice. Well, Jess, uh, as I as I said in the intro, um, you've uh, been writing about your journey to get uh, into the uh, the world of finance and investing. You've been an economics journalist uh, since 2005. So I guess you've been in the world of money for a while, uh, but you didn't start investing until this year. So I guess uh, let's start there. Um, why why didn't you start investing before this year? Look, it's a question I get a lot and I almost sort of bristle at it and think, oh gosh, it's exposed me as such a financial novice that I didn't think to invest in shares until this point. Um, but it also makes me feel really old because you're right, I did start as a journalist in 2005 um, I, at the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age and my very first start in that was like writing the daily dollar column. So I would, I would get the GDP figures, figure out that the dollar went up or down, ring a bunch of economists and, you know, put a story together to try and explain why. Um, so I did learn via that a lot of the ins and outs of the economy. Uh, but so I do just want to remind younger listeners that <laughs> back in 2005, when I got started, there was this magical thing where you could put your money in deposits on the bank and the bank would pay you like... <laughs> You didn't have to do anything. (laughs) Um, So, you know, for previous generations, it wasn't necessary to be investing. Um, I looked up the figures on the RBA website for what was what you could earn on an online savings account with $10,000 sitting in there. Just before the GFC, you could stash $10,000 in an online savings account and for one month, I, data I saw, you could earn 7.3% risk-free. Wow. Um, <laughs> and the that figure is today is 0.05%. Mm. <laughs> so, you know, I don't, I don't feel too bad that I didn't start investing until recently because it's only a very recent phenomenon that younger people, if they want to protect their savings from inflation, um, can't do that in a bank account anymore. You know, you, you're looking at investing that money to try and protect the value of it. So it's a very new thing. So I'm only recently getting onto it like lots of people. I mean, yeah, we can only dream of what it would have been like to have 7% in a bank account, but um, <laughs> uh, nonetheless. So, so, Jess, what was one of the, I guess, the biggest barriers you decided, all right, the bank account's not giving me what I need 
I need to start putting some money elsewhere. What was one of the biggest barriers, I guess, that you first had to work through and what was that experience? Yeah, I mean, at least for me, one of the barriers is not understanding these concepts because I've been writing about them for 15 years or so. Um, so I know what inflation is. I know about compounding interest. I know interest rates. Uh, I know what stock markets are and how they work. So for me, it's an attitude thing and it's an, an emotion thing and it's a confidence thing. Let this be a lesson to you all that you can know a lot about this stuff but still find it really intimidating Um to get into it. And for me, I almost know too much. I sit there and I worry about interest rates and long-term global bond yields and what that will mean for share market returns and if we've entered a new period of stagflation. And (laughs) so, you know, I'm actually a little (laughs) bit more cautious than many people might be going into the share market going, you know what, it's going up 20% this year, but it sure is are we allowed to swear on the? <laughs> <laughs> Do whatever you want. I say it, it sure as well, so that you know. Yeah, not that's, fine. <laughs> that's, fine. that's fine. That's fine. We're not going to do that every year, you know. In terms of the barriers, yeah. Then it was just um, literally. I remember thinking, "Okay, I'm going to buy shares." And the first thing I did, this is embarrassing. I went to the ASX website. And I was like, "How?" you know, I'm going to buy some shares through the ASX. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, you can't. <laughs> you need to go through yeah, an intermediary. Yeah. <laughs> it's not a direct retail thing that you have to go through a broker. So I've not come from a family where we sat and chatted about shares and we were taught how to do that. So even just to realise, no, you have to have a broker. And then it's like, well, how do you find a broker? Um, there are, you know, you... Also, if you go to the ASX website, there's tens, tens and hundreds of them. Um, so a lot of the time was just spent, as I say, trying to figure out how much I should be paying for brokerage, how to open an account, just that nitty gritty. I think that is a massive barrier for people. Um, I don't know how we make that easier. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, one of the most common questions we get in our Instagram DMs or over email is is around that, you know, how do I actually buy shares? How do I choose what broker's right for me? Um, and and what are all the what do all the different things mean? What's a hin? What's chess sponsored? There's there's a lot of jargon and a lot of confusing bits right at the front end of your investing journey. Um, and I think a lot of people will probably be reassured that someone who's been writing about the economy for so long faces similar challenges that everyone does. Yeah, and then there's also this problem we encounter that the giving financial advice is illegal if you're not qualified to do it. So people want the information, but we're sort of inhibited from saying, well, this is actually the best broker or this is the cheapest one or this is what you should be investing in because then you're into, into financial advice territory, which is a minefield. must be for you guys as much as for me um, in writing my yeah, and for us, and honestly, we could have a whole conversation about this, so Bryce might need to rein me in, but uh, the, <laughs> the the structure of the industry is that when people most need advice, like when they don't know anything and they don't know what they're doing, is exactly the point where they can't get advice because they can't afford it. You know, a statement of advice is a few thousand dollars at the very least, and for someone who's trying to invest their first $500 or $1,000, it's out of reach for them. And it just feels like the, the structure of the industry is is kind of backwards in some way. The more money you have, the better advice you can afford, but you need it yeah. less. I mean, it should be reassuring for people that, you know, it is 
it is intimidating. It is complex. It's not you. You're not the problem. What you're facing is a complex choice. Yeah. So, so what were some of the key resources that you found helpful in figuring out what broker to use? Should you be paying five, seven fifty nine, nineteen ninety five in brokerage? How, how how did you actually work through that? Yeah. So I'm in a very fortunate position that I'm actually paid to. Figure out these things. Right about it. And, right, and I can ring up, you know, you know, like I literally just got on the phone and I'm ringing Morningstar and I'm ringing Shane Oliver at AMP Capital and I'm ringing all the people and I can ring up and have the weight of the Sydney Morning Herald behind me um, and say, talk to me, tell me all about this. And like I literally had an analyst on the phone with me or via text when I executed my first share trade and I was like, what's a buy bid? My voice has just gone really high up. What's which just should tell you about the panic I was feeling at the time. What's a buy sell spread? You know, like literally, what point zero zero should I be putting in? Um, yeah, and they will talk mm. talk me all through it. So, yeah, I mean, things like I have found Morningstar really good. You can get a four week free subscription to sort of look at their website and their resources. I'm on Instagram and I follow a lot of people on Instagram. I listen to your podcast. I listened to a lot of, you know, finance podcasts. Um, but, yeah, for me, I could actually just go around and interview everyone. <laughs> <laughs> that helps. That helps. <laughs> the, the big takeaway from that is if you're really unsure, pretend to be a journalist and just see if you can get someone to talk to you. <laughs> or actually be one. Like I remember I was literally talking to one of the sort of deputy governors of the Reserve Bank and I was like, yeah, but by the way, I fixed in my mortgage at 1.84. Is that pretty good? You know, <laughs> so like I get a little bit of in- inside help with my yeah, finances, yeah, which yeah. I then generously well, share with everyone. <laughs> yeah, and we should say as well as uh, reading your articles in the Sydney Morning Herald, you also are on Instagram um, and I think you have a podcast uh, out or coming out. Uh, so you're sharing your knowledge that you're getting from these people in a lot of yeah, different ways. Yeah, I'm Money with Jess on Instagram. You can find me and I've got links in there to how you can subscribe to my weekly newsletter as well. And, yes, I've taken over the reins for the Please Explain podcast for the Sydney Morning Herald and the Age Newsrooms on Wednesdays. I'm going to be doing like we did house prices yesterday. Um, so you can find me there on Wednesdays. Thanks for the opportunity to just get nice. in there with a plug. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. That's all right. The more people trying to help educate everyone, uh, the better. So uh, it's great. It's great that what you're doing. We don't quite have the weight of the Sydney Morning Herald behind us, but now that we know you, we'll uh, we'll get you to throw your weight around when we need it. Um, you mentioned there uh, your mortgage, and we want to, I guess, take a step back from um, investing specifically and just talk more generally about, I guess, personal finance, budgeting, um, because a lot of people listening, Bryce and I, um, you know, we're all trying to figure out money more generally, not just uh, investing. You recently wrote an article, 40 Things I Wish I Knew About Money Before Turning 40. Now, we're not going to ask you to list all 40, but what were some of the key things that you wish you knew um, when you were sort of Bryce and my age or, you know, when you were an 18-year-old fresh out of school trying to figure out what, what the hell to do with your money? Yeah, I mean, I remember number one was just boring and it was just track your spending. Um, and that's been my biggest thing in the last two years, just literally writing down every dollar that I spend. I've got a monthly budget tracker. Um, it seems so elementary, but so boring <laughs> that it just never occurred to me that other people were out there doing this. And yes, if you want to get a handle on your finances, you need to know where your money's going. You need to know how much is coming in. And ultimately that determines 
what sort of a surplus you've got to invest if that is right for you. So just literally going back to primary school and like can you add up everything that you're spending and everything that you're earning and figure out how much money you've got, um, that has been a revelation to me. And I do look back and think if I have been doing that for the last 20 years that I've been in the workforce, how much more money, you know, could I have saved? <laughs> so just like getting people to put pen to paper and look at look at your spending. Um, it's the first piece of financial advice you get anywhere on Money Smart from any personal finance writer, but it's actually doing that and implementing it, which I think people have a bit of a hurdle with. I'm trying to think what else was on the list. I sort of moved through all the major things like super and your mortgage. With mortgages, I sort of the main thing uh, is you don't need a 20% deposit. That was the major revelation for me. You know, look, it's ideal, but in an, in an environment where house prices went up 18.4% over the last year, um, you know, you know, if you are interested in home ownership, if you want to own your home, there are ways to get into the market without having to wait till you've got 20%. So I sort of, and I, when I bought my place, um, didn't have a 20%. Um, I had about 15% deposit and I got my parents to go guarantor on the missing 5% so I didn't have to pay lender's mortgage insurance. You know, lucky, good luck if you can do that sort of thing, if your parents can do that for you. Oh, gosh, there were 40 on the list. I can keep going. (laughs) (laughs) Other things I think majorly to do with super. So I guess for your audience thinking about investing, Guess what? I mean, and congratulations, everyone. You are already investing through your super. Um, it's just largely happening in the background and you're not you're not really thinking about it. Um, so it is a decision for people as to whether you want to directly own shares or whether you want to get on the super bandwagon and get all the juicy tax concessions that you can get there, albeit you can't then access that money until you're 60. But for me, um, discovering that you can stash away $27,500 into super and only pay 15 cents tax on on that amount versus whatever your marginal rate is, and mine is larger than that. So this year for the first time, I put a big lump sum extra into super rather than buying shares directly because I wanted to max out that tax concession. And I'm, I'm now awaiting a really juicy tax refund <laughs> that um, <laughs> I can then, you know, either put into super or probably into direct shares because I would like to retire a little bit earlier than the 60. So I'm just hoping I can suck away a little bit extra that that can maybe tide me over for a couple of years before I can access the super. So super, 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 get onto it um, and, and make sure you getting all the tax breaks that you can. And it's not just for high income earners. If you're on a lower, a low income, there can be some of the best concessions for you because you've got um, co, co-contributions from the government. Um, it's well worth looking at your super and looking at it at young. Yeah, could, couldn't agree more. We've just done a series on super and just really trying to encourage people to be more active in uh, how they think about and engage with their super because, as you said, Jess, almost anyone who's in the workforce is investing in the market, whether or not they know it or not. Uh, And so the more you can uh, understand how your super operates and the advantages that it, it brings, if you, you know, treat it right and think about it, it's, it's pretty, um, pretty life changing later on down the track. I think if you spend a bit of time figuring it out. Um, One of the biggest personal finance questions that we get here through the community is, you know, should I save for a home deposit or should I, 
rent and then invest directly in the share market. Now, as Alex said, uh, we're on one side of the tracks. We don't both don't own homes and that's uh, because house prices keep going up 20% each year <laughs> and saving that 20% <laughs> deposit is just crazy. But you've written a lot about your journey to home ownership and you touched a bit on it there. But how, how do you think about this decision between home ownership or investing in the stock market? I'll show my age again because when I was young, like you boys, <laughs> um, I was very much in the rent vest camp. I was like, why can't you, you know, rent money is not dead money any more than all this money that you'd pay to a bank in interest is dead money. So, you know, just the idea that renting and investing is somehow inferior to housing in a intellectual sense, I, do, I don't buy into. I think you can... It is possible to be very disciplined to rent and then, you know, put aside a portion of your salary into shares or super and and enjoy the sort of investment returns on that, which could mimic for you depending on, you know, it also depends like what sort of property you're willing to buy. You know, there's so many factors that go into it. But, yes, the number one piece of personal advice is usually buy your house then do all your investing. But, I mean, I, given the way that things are with housing affordability, I can see alternatives because, and in particularly with stamp duty, you don't want to be young and buying a house and then selling and moving every two years because you're going to be paying $50,000 to the state government every time that you do that. So I can see a logic in renting and investing um, for a while. I ultimately have chosen to buy, and, again, that's a tax thing, it, because the family home is tax-free. You know, any gains that property prices just went up 18%, I just made 18% on my purchase amount and it's all tax-free. blows my mind. And, and also when I am an old lady and I retire, I won't have any housing expenses. So if you are looking at doing a long-term rent, in, rent vest thing, you have to be saving probably a little bit more because there's going to be years from 60 to 100, touch wood, if you die at 100, where you're going to still be paying rent where everyone who's paid off their home won't be incurring that expense. And for me, I'm happy to settle down. I've got a, a kid now. I enjoy the stability of, of not having to move. But it wasn't always that way. But um, I, maybe that's a cautionary thing that you think you want to be loose and fancy free and then you have kids and you're just like, I never want to move again. <laughs> I feel, I feel like that's the key takeaway here is the kid component. Yeah, watch out for that one. <laughs> so, Jess, we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor and then we're going to uh, touch on everything that you've learned since starting your investing journey. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So Jess... You've now been investing for a few months um, and you recently wrote an article in the SMH, uh, Six Things I've Learned Since Becoming a Newbie Share Market Investor. What are some of the key things that you've learned over the past few months? The number one was just the level of paperwork that is involved with something. I thought it was going to be super high tech, you know, like it's all online. And then I'm getting all this 
paper letters from share registries from my ETF fund issuers um, from the ASX um, are just do you guys know why they haven't sorted that out yet? Oh, it's it's a it's a big gripe for us. One of our policies here, we've got a few policies at Equitymates. One of them is that we hate fees. That's policy number one, and uh, I can't even remember policy number two. But uh, we no, we, we hate, hate jargon. jargon. Sorry, I shouldn't should know that we hate <laughs> jargon. But policy number three recently introduced is that we hate paperwork because there is so much of it, and we're on a bit of a movement here to uh, convince those share registers to. Get it online. Far out. Honestly, the the only mail I get these days is online shopping purchases or letters from share <laughs> registries. So, I think my housemates might think I'm more popular than I am just because I get heaps of letters. <laughs> um, so, that was my number one newbie lesson. The second one is that it's impossible to stop checking your balance. And I don't know how to stop this, but I do wake up in the morning and check my share market balance or my share trading account balance and I check it in the afternoon. And I just feel like maybe that's just inevitable. Maybe that will wear off. Will that wear off? I think so. It has for me, um, for sure. Yeah, yeah. I... I think I'm quite lazy when it comes to a lot of this stuff and I think that is one of the biggest behavioral advantages I have in the share market. Like I can go weeks without checking it and it just it just is a weight off your mind. Like I once a quarter I check everything. Yeah, I'm hoping to get to that point. My other big journey that I've been on is with dividend reinvestment plans. Um, I signed up for the dividend reinvestment plan of my ETF that I have bought into, which is my only investment so far, without realizing that actually the dividend I was going to receive would not be of a big enough size to actually purchase another unit to actually reinvest in the same ETF. So I've got $23 sitting there that I've had to pay tax on. Well, I'm about to have to do it, but I don't actually have it. And it's not invested. It's just sitting there I'm not even sure if it's sitting with the ETF issuer or the share registry, but I'm now emailing back and forward with the share registry just to try and get my money back because I've cancelled it because I figure I will just consolidate that into my regular savings. The the dividend income that I get, I'm a regular investor. I invest monthly with whatever is my surplus from the previous month. Um, So I will do that. But just, you know, dividend reinvestment plans, they sound so, ooh, they just sound good. Like, of course, you should reinvest your money. Don't take it all out and um, go frolic with it. But also, if you've got small investments, it is worth considering. And somebody else raised with me, if you do dividend reinvest, it makes your tax more complicated because you're buying in at a different tax cost base and you have to keep a record of everything. And so that is one, perhaps one of the last things that I learned as a newbie investor is just it does make your tax more complicated. So mm. if you could take mm. me back mm. to 2005 and offer me the seven, the 5 to 7%, you know, without having to then also be pre-filling my tax with foreign source income and <laughs> frank dividends, like I might prefer a simpler world. Like we're being forced to navigate new things um it makes our tax more complicated although if you're patient enough it will auto fill but mine hasn't yet it it, it, there's complexity to it maybe there needs to be an smh and age led campaign for the government to do a lot more of that uh like pre-filled tax uh stuff to make it easier for investors 
would would get behind you on that. Yeah, I feel like it's the one area at the moment that hasn't quite been nailed successfully, and that is record keeping for a lot of beginner investors. I know there are services out there that are working on it and they're getting better, but just understanding what records need to be kept, how to keep them, and the impact that those records have later on down the track. It's so easy to just start buying and selling when you start start out and then in two years' time when someone says, oh, what you buy those shares for because you have a capital gain, you're like, oh my God, I have no idea. So yeah, it's an interesting one. Yeah, I think maybe it's the ATO's responsibility to be putting out some more resources or something to make it clearer what you're supposed to do, even to like things like ETFs make distributions which you have to declare in the financial year in which you accrued them, you know, which the underlying investments generated that return versus dividends which are paid in the year that you declare them in the year that it was um, actually hit your bank account. Like there's a yeah. lot. There's a lot, isn't there? <laughs> there is. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I think the brokers are – well, some of the brokers are definitely working on tax reporting. Um, I'm not going to name names, but one of my uh, – one of the brokers that I have used releases their tax reporting after the end of Australian tax uh, season, like after you have to file your tax return, which was always a frustration um. for me. Um, but I think I think the brokers are getting better at it. But there's just so many different players. You've got the – product issuers or the companies and then you've got the registries then you've got the brokers and a lot of people have mi- multiple brokers and then there's micro investing apps it's complicated we just yeah. we shouldn't scare people too much but no <laughs> these are all barriers no, that can no, be no. overcome, <laughs> yeah, overcome. Yeah. at some point you've yeah, just well, got to I- crash on through and just go i've got to do it I might lose $23 because I've lost it in my dividend reinvestment plan. Um, you know, I might open an account and I might pay a little bit extra for my brokerage than I could have, but time in the market, you know, you, it's, you've got to weigh that against getting in. If you, if you want to be in, if it's suitable for you to be in, you've got to sort of take a few deep breaths and just you will figure it out later. Now, Jess, one quote that we particularly loved in a re- recent article you wrote is really sort of captures the essence of why Ren and I love investing and why stocks are such a so exciting, I guess. And that's, you've said, my confidence to invest in shares comes from an abiding belief that very clever humans will always find very clever ways to combine capital and labor to produce additional value. And for us, you know, it's so exciting to be able to invest in the Amazons, the Facebooks, the Microsofts of the world so easily from essentially the home couch or our bedroom and investing in these companies who are just going out and hiring the best people to create shareholder value. So off the back of this, how is it affecting or how are you thinking about actually investing and what are you thinking about investing in? Yeah, so my main problem is I don't know who the specific very clever people are that are going to create this value. (laughs) Uh, So that's the hard thing. Um, But I do have a belief that over time things have got better um, in our lives. We enjoy higher material standards of of living. Um, Companies have created products that are providing immense value to consumers and they can sell them and we keep reinventing things. So, I mean, the economics of that is solid, you know, productivity, although productivity has not been rising that fast lately, we do become more efficient as humans. You know, it's sort of, it's evolution. We get better at things, you know, which is a really joyful, optimistic thing. And being part of shares is like you're buying a little part of the companies that are getting better at doing things. The problem is, identifying the companies that are going to do that. So my my investment philosophy so far 
has been very much passive index-based investments. I'm not willing to make the call yet as to who I think is going to do the very clever things, but I know that on average over time people will do well. And so I've been buying passive index ETFs. Yeah, so my first one was in an ASX 200. There's several, and I'm pretty particular about not revealing which particular ETFs I'm purchasing, but it's an indexed Australian one. Interesting. So in an article, uh, you wrote about three ETFs that you like, um, but I'm assuming they're not the, that's they're not the ones you actually invest in based on based on that comment there. Yeah. So it's having identified, okay, I'm chasing very clever people. And then I've realized, oh, I've only invested in Australian clever people. If you've only picked an index one in Australia, do I believe there are clever people overseas? Yes. Do I believe there are clever people overseas who don't reside in America? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Um, So that was my decision tree because you can just get an index of Australia and an index in America, which I think is quite common. But then I have this abiding belief that Americans aren't the most clever people in the world. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I do believe they're very entrepreneurial and they do actually have tax rules and um, antitrust regimes, which actually make it easy to become quite a very big, powerful company. So I'm not leaning into that. I'm leaning into just, I wanted to get a little slice of the world. And I did actually ring up lots of analysts and say, I want an ETF, which buys me a slice of the companies in every, every country in the world. So that's why I have now honed in on some of the ones like, I think, what was it, VGS? Um, yeah, so the three the three for people who haven't read the article, Vanguard MSCI Index International Shares, which is VGS, uh, SBDR S&P World X Australia, WXOZ, and iShares Global 100 IOO. Yeah, so they were just, and I mean, again, this is not financial advice and they're not, not actually the ones I like. I don't own them yet, but I just think it would, was so valuable for people facing this decision overload to just go, well, okay, if you were looking to invest in a global index fund, which was exposed to lots of different countries, here are some of the ones that meet that criteria. So that's more why I wrote that article. It's just, you know, where on earth do you start? Here's, um, I'm not recommending them. That would be highly illegal for me to do. <laughs> um, but they're the ones. Yeah, and I haven't yeah. actually decided which ones I want to do because I'm going to my next monthly surplus funds will go into one of these. I need international diversification. I know that. But I don't know which one yet. It's interesting that you say this, Jess, because I've recently come off uh, the back of a portfolio review myself and what's in my portfolio, particularly on the ETF front, because I know that there's a lot of, there was a lot of overlap between ETFs, which is kind of pointless if you're, uh, you may as well just pick one and, and kind of go with it. And I'm of the same belief that I, I really want to get some international exposure, ex-US, ex-Australia, because you can easily get uh, indexes that focus in on those two. And so I have been looking at a number of these ETFs as well. But one of the challenges is that with any of the ETFs that say they're global, if you look under the hood, the exposure is still predominantly, and I'm talking like 75% US stocks just because of the sheer size of these companies. So you do have to find ETFs that are like specific to Europe or specific to Asia if you do want to get out of America and and Australia. And I think it's just a good call out for people who are thinking exactly like 
we are. And, you know, I want to, I want to back at the Europeans or the, what's going on in Asia is to just actually look underneath. It might say global, but yes, it's 75% US. Yeah, that's such a good point. I mean, it's buying you a weighted, you know, basket of the current share markets in the size that they are and the companies of the size that they are. I guess if you're then looking at emerging markets or even the poor old Europeans who have been doing so well, like that's you're adding a decision layer and you just need to be conscious that you're doing that. Okay, I'm, I'm picking that they have underperformed and they might overperform or that there's more growth in them than there would be in America. Um, so that's a good observation and it just shows any decision that you make you're going down a decision tree and just be aware that that might pay off for you or it might not, depending on how things go. Um, On the point of, you know, Europe has underperformed as America has powered ahead, there's this book uh, called Triumph of the Optimist that is basically just a like a hundred and something years of stock market data and I haven't read it. I'm not that into the numbers, but uh, I hear it discussed a lot. And one of the takeaways is that, it just changes like decade to decade which regions are underperform and which ones overperform. And, you know, we've grown up in a world where America has just produced trillion dollar company after trillion dollar company. But the stock market history shows that, you know, Australia will have its moment in the sun and Europe will have its moment in the sun. And so I think that that core idea of there are smart people everywhere who are doing incredible things and finding a way to spread spread it, your money across the world is is the right one. Yeah, my main question is about there are smart people, but are the systems that um, exist, do they privilege some people over the other ones? So like this is my, I don't know about big stocks versus small stocks. You know, if, do you believe that the economy is free and everyone can flourish in an equal sense? You can be a small guy with a dream and or gal and you build a company or do we think that, there's agglomeration and there's superstar companies that can then rent seek um, and, you know, pervert national laws to get power. And so it's the big ones that will outperform versus the little ones. And I don't know how cynical to be, but I'm a little bit uh, weighted to, well, recent history shows it's the big guys that can just really entrench in and do all the rent seeking and, and get all the returns from the big networks that they've created. So I don't know whether to bet in that direction or against it. Yeah, it's an interesting one. And I mean, you mentioned uh, earlier America's antitrust regime and how there's just been so much consolidation at the big end of town. And you can get very cynical when you, um, you know, when you look at all of this stuff. But I think as investors, you have to remain hopeful that, you know, companies will continue to get better and, um, you know, the future will be better. And as a result, these companies will make us money. I agree. So, Jess, we are, are running out of time, unfortunately. So, I guess to, to close out, you know, we always like to ask our expert investors a piece of advice that they wish you, they knew before they started investing. And I know you've only been in the markets for a few months, but um, you've certainly been thinking about it and writing about it for a long period of time. So, if you were to look back, is there anything you wish you knew before you took that plunge? I wish I knew, yeah, it's. I think it's impossible to get to a stage of planning and knowledge such that you won't feel scared when you make that first investment, unless I've missed something. Um, but you, it's natural and it's even good to be a bit cautious, you know. It's not the same as putting your money in the bank. Your returns are going to fluctuate. 
you know, for all the reasons we've discussed, we're not sure where the value is going to be created, or, you know, so your returns are going to vary. Um, but if you've got a long-term plan, if I'm investing for sort of at least 15 to 20 years, possibly longer, you've just got to feel the fear and do it anyway at some point, which is not to endorse risky behaviour. Um, but, yeah, if I just would tell Jess from six months ago, Feel the fear, feel the emotion of it, um, but just remember you've done all your planning and you you know what you're doing. You've got a strategy for what you're doing. Go for it. And then, you know, there is actually there's joy in that of seeing something that seemed previously insurmountable and doing it. It might be messy. You might have paid brokerage. It was too high, um, but, but you're in. Um, and so it is a real confidence builder it's a capacity builder you're teaching yourself to do new things and as as much as I've whinged about dividend reinvestment plans overall I feel very positive that I've been able to do it and just to tell people that it, it, it is intimidating but you can do it if it's appropriate for you and your financial situation. <laughs> great piece of advice and great disclaimer thank you for, st- for getting that one in but no I, I think Ren and I on the show and in, in the book and wherever we can just try to encourage people is exactly what you've just said. And that is to get started, understand you're not going to get everything right from the start. It's not going to be perfect. You are going to make mistakes, but there's really no other way to do it. You know, it's impossible to try and learn everything on paper and in theory before you start. I mean, even Warren Buffett, 91, two days ago, and he's still learning how to do um, elements of investing. So it's a lifelong journey, but one we think is, in, is crucially important to understand and get started with. So it's been a great interview and we really mm. appreciate your time. Thank you. I loved nerding out with you on all of that. <laughs> <laughs> We've done four and a half years of nerding out on this, so come back anytime you want to nerd out again. <laughs> I'll take you up on that. <laughs> Thanks, Jess. Thanks. Get Started Investing is a product of Equity Bates Media. All information in this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. It is not intended as a substitute for professional finance, legal, or tax advice. The hosts of Get Started Investing are not financial professionals and are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. Before making any financial decisions, you should read the product disclosure statement and, if necessary, consult a licensed financial professional. Do not take financial advice from a podcast. For more information, head to the disclaimer page on the Equitymates website where you can find the ASIC resources and find a registered financial professional near you. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equitymates Media and the hosts of Get Started Investing acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today.